Good evening, everybody. Really nice that you're all here. And um, I'm Ian. I'm the director of the Red Line. This is Patrick Marber. And um, I think these things work best when they're as much of a conversation as possible. Um, but thank you for coming, and I hope you really enjoy the play, if you're seeing it later. Where did football start for you as a boy? Was it somewhere that you could dive into for release or excitement? Were you into football as a child? Yes, I was. Um, and I loved playing football. And I, I grew up in Wimbledon. My early years were spent in Wimbledon. I spent a lot of time on Wimbledon Common, kicking a ball about with friends. Played in the back garden with my dad. Um, started going to watch the Arsenal at quite a young age. Did he um, take you? My dad took me to my first game. We actually, my first ever football match was at Stamford Bridge. We saw Chelsea play Arsenal in the early 70s. Um, I had a little flirtation with Chelsea for a while, but Arsenal were the family team and that's where I ended up. Uh, but I, yes, when I think of childhood, I think of myself playing football for school teams and I played for a local team and I loved it. Um, and recognised at a certain age, probably about 11 or 12, that I wasn't good enough to be a pro, um, which every child who realises that, it's, it's a very upsetting moment in one's life. When you, but did, it, did it create a pair in the family of you and your father, talking mm. about football, going No, football? because um, my dad is a sports fan, but not an avid football fan. But... Uh, I remember very well him taking me to Wembley for the first time. So he was uh, an enabling dad um, who enjoyed my love of football and would come and watch me a lot. So yes, there was definitely bonding there. I definitely remember the first time he took me to Wembley um, see Manchester City beat Newcastle in the League Cup. And I remember that extremely well, him showing me the ticket and my absolute elation that we were going to Wembley Stadium. It was a big deal. <coughs> And then when you have sons, do you have the moral question, should I inflict football on them? Because <laughs> there can be a sort of, I would describe it as an autism almost of football for boys, certain boys, where they are so immersed in it. It's between about seven and 11, almost the only thing they can talk about. And I should just say the play is not really about football. And you know, I would direct a play about embroidery uh, if it made embroidery metaphorical and interesting, etc. And that's how football functions in this play, but it's a good angle into Patrick. So you have three sons, and mm -hmm. I don't think your wife particularly likes football, does she? Not particularly. She tolerates it. But yeah. then you take... Well, I think at least two of them love football. Yeah, two, two love it, one doesn't. Um, and it, it doesn't affect anything. It's just two turned out to like the game, one didn't. Yeah. We do other things. Yeah. Um, uh, did I inflict it upon them? I'm not sure. I think for the ones who did like playing football, yes, being in the garden kicking a ball about with their dad was bonding for them. And I remember spending many, many hours with my oldest son. He's the oldest one, always gets more attention. Mm. Um, he's 13 now, but yeah, when he was about six or seven mm. and first got mm. it, it was, you know four-hour sessions yes. that he wanted to play. So yes. it's, a, it's a way of boys finding a way into their mysterious yes. dads. I think the, the women in my house have an aching dread 
when football comes on television and they feel they lose me to a sort of fog. But I feel were it not for football, my relationship with my father would be very different because it's the connective tissue through which we can talk about a whole series of things. Uh, a particular referee, uh, the change strip of a, of a team and why they've chosen that colour allows us to inhabit a world of mutuality that's um, connective. And so um, that's part of the entry, I, I guess, for all of us into the play, what it means for these men and their love of beauty and community and connection and, and winning. But I was going to say to you, your dreams were smashed at 11 when you realised you couldn't be a footballer. What then was the next dream? Did you have a sense of a career that you might... Yes, at about, yes, theatre. Um, at about the age of 11, I started acting in school plays and got the same buzz out of rehearsing a play and waiting <coughs> backstage to go on and then doing it as I, as I got from football. Um, and I think they're, they're remarkably similar in many respects. What, what's similar about them? You rehearse a play, it's like training as a footballer. You're preparing to go, go on stage or go onto the pitch and play this live event. Obviously, you have tactics. The director has told you what to do, but it's live. Anything can happen. You get nervous. You worry that you won't perform well. You get applause if you do. And you have an exhilarating high. It's very similar. Were you conscious of that as you were writing the play, that it was in some ways an allegory for theatre. Yes, because um, I felt um, exiled from theatre because I couldn't write. Um, so I've, I've bored on about in various interviews, so I won't bore more here, but there was a long period of time, four or five years, when I couldn't write, and I hadn't written a play for eight years, and I thought it was possible that I'd never write another play again. And so part of the feeling in this play is an exhilaration that I was writing it again. And at the time of the writing of it, I wasn't writing it for anyone but you, really, because Ian had developed the play with me very intimately. Uh, the fact that it was going to go on was a, a very big added bonus, but at the time it was just amazing to be writing again. I mean, that's interesting. If you weren't exiled, perhaps the play wouldn't be infused and enriched with that pain of abandonment, yeah. separation. Sure, they, I mean the club in the play for me to some extent uh, has equivalence with the National Theatre. This was my home, this, this room we're in now is where my first three plays were put on and I feel a great love for this building that we're in and the theatre in general. It was the theatre I came to as a kid and made me want to be a writer. Um, it formed me. So it's, it's a very big place in my life. Mm. When did you start putting playwright on a visa to go to America <laughs> or on a form where you have to state your occupation? I've, I've never actually used playwright. I, you, I, I call myself writer. Okay. Um, I suppose because I write movies as well, occasionally, and I feel slightly self-conscious about being a playwright, although I am. Um, I guess about after I'd written two plays, maybe, I thought that's what I am now, not a comedian anymore. And in the period of exile, 
Did you still write writer on <laughs> those forms? Uh, yes, if I had to, but it felt bogus. I mean, a writer writes, and I wasn't writing. Um, but I knew I had written things, but it seemed very, very distant. It's a very strange thing to not be able to do the thing that you think you've been put on this earth to do. Yeah, yeah. At that time of um, kind of inability to quite flow into writing, you took your son Albie to a non-league football club. At a real low moment in your life. Tell us mm. about that. Well, I was living in Sussex at the time and uh, my then eight-year-old son and I decided to go and have a look at this, our local club, which was Lewis Football Club. Um, does anyone know Lewis? Quite near Brighton, it's a lovely town. And um, we sort of sneaked into the ground one summer's day and he ran about on the pitch and we sat in the dugout. And I, I fell in love with this gorgeous little pitch. Um, seemed idyllic and perfect and like heavenly football could be played played there and we decided to become supporters of our local club rather than trek up to London and go and see Arsenal we decided to go local and very quickly that season fell in love with this this ground and this team um, and got to understand who the players were and just found it a very exciting football experience and then I found out that the club were in debt as was I at the time um, and um, because I couldn't work and there was you know mortgage to the hilt and um, so I met with the manager of the club he'd, he'd sent out an SOS on the website to any supporters who were interested in helping save the club I was a new supporter I'd been supporting the club two months and I didn't want this club to cease to exist they owed uh, the VAT man a hundred grand which is a fortune in the world of non-league they were about to go into administration and one uh, November morning, I met with him uh, in the dressing room of Lewis Football Club. It was pouring with rain. Um, you could really hear it on the roof. And uh, he told me the sad story of how the club had come to this sorry state. And for no apparent reason, I found myself saying to this man, I will help you save your football club. And I made this pledge to him. It was very solemn for me. Um, <coughs> And I don't know why I said it. I was moved by this man who was um, putting his, uh, to keep the club afloat, he was dipping into his own pension fund. And he wasn't a rich man at all. He was the manager of the club. He wasn't getting paid to be the manager of the club, but he believed in this thing. And I believed in it too. I was a recent convert. And then um, I spent the next two years of my life really um, with five other guys. We, we raised money and we took over the club. We bought the club. We became the new board of the club, and we turned the club into a supporter-owned football club, and that's what I did. I devoted myself. So, just to get this straight, you were personally hemorrhaging money, mm. <laughs> not fulfilling your commitments to various commissions and screenplays, mm. and you spent all your time saving a club and a man mm. instead of writing. But at that low point, somehow, going to the bottom of the well, you've created a play somewhat from that <coughs> sensibility. Yes, yes, that was, the, that was the reward, but I didn't know it at the time. At the time, it was a thing I felt I could do. 
when there were so many things I was failing at, thought I could succeed at this. And actually, in the end, recruited these five other chaps who were sort of as lost as I was in their right. way. They seemed like five totally solid, regular guys. Mm -hmm. But actually, the more you get to meet anyone and know anyone, you find out, you see the cracks. Everyone's nuts in the end, you, you discover in their own idiosyncratic way. And um, yes, it was a very odd thing to do. Um, and I certainly didn't think there was anything to be written about it. Um, and it was years later, really, when I started meeting with you that, and telling you the story of this, that I started to think, well, Ian seems quite interested in this world of non-league football and the plight of this club. Maybe, maybe there is something, and it was through the talking that we um, got to some notion of this play. But it took a long time to wrangle it, I would say. The play could have taken any number of different forms. It took a long time before it was a three-hander set in one room. And that word wrangle, I'm seeing a beast that's sinewy and muscular that needs to be wrangled mm. into a form or a shape or into a corral or where do horses get wrangled into, I suppose, anywhere. Mm. Um, is that what a play's like inside you? They differ. Um, sometimes I think a play is a bit like um, Omar Sharif appearing out of the desert in Lawrence of Arabia, that it shimmers towards you <laughs> to a point where you recognise what it is. Um, but this one, yes, was more, more needed to be wrangled. It, was, it could have been this, it could have been that, it could have been that, that experience, that feeling. And eventually it had to be controlled and contained in this one room. And that, that was the gradual recognition. Yeah. And I wrote, I remember I wrote, started writing scenes, like homework, that I would deliver to you on a weekly basis. Almost exactly two years ago, started delivering those scenes. Some of which are in the play now, sort of lines here and there and odd ideas. So they're real <coughs> rough, rough working manuscripts for what this play became. And I suppose the stakes, looking back, were so high. Was this material of value? Could you wrangle it into an um, effective shape and... Could it function like a thoroughbred running through the plains? Um, yet you kept going. There was a sort of tenacity about that. It's difficult to keep going, but once I started writing dialogue again and keeping a notebook and feeling like a playwright, it was quite easy, in fact, to remember um, those muscles and just had to look after myself a bit and work every day and get, get match fit again. But it didn't actually take that long until I remembered the feeling of, oh, yes, I know what it's like writing a play. It's a sort of gorgeous agony of one day feeling you had a play and the next day feeling it wasn't a play. That's, that's my experience of writing a play. It's a play. No, it isn't. Oh, it is. It's a play. No, it isn't. And a sort of lurching progress. And I remember you reading the first act of the play. I've got a photo of you reading it because I knew this either meant it was a play or it wasn't a play. And my, my first question is not, is it any good? It's, is it a play? And I think by that, I mean, is it going to stand up? Are actors going to be able to speak this stuff and audiences not throw vegetables at them? Is it, 
Has it got that thing that a play needs to have? Will it go forwards? Yes, I mean, this word play, everybody's ingenious, hungry need to play, and you get it in that word, the play, mm. and that means Patrick is playing, and it's a word that the play meditates upon right the way through it. Um, I, I think I sent you a postcard with a Ted Hughes quotation saying that the truest art contains a kind of confession of all the things you can't bear to admit about yourself. And I think the play really metabolised the more you threw at it of your own yearnings and uh, longings and hatreds and stuff like that. And then you find yourself, I imagine, as a playwright, looking at, because you could say every character in a play is a sub-personality or a you know, sort of bastard child of the writer, looking at kind of yourself in three. Mm -hmm. And that must be so fascinating and challenging. Or are you able just to then let it go and see the play as separate from you? Yes, at a, at a certain point, the characters start telling me what they must do. And I, it sounds a bit pretentious to say this, but I cease to have control over them. They have a life of their own, and I'm just, they just flow through me. So there's a period where I'm, I feel completely dominant, and then a period where I feel they dominate me. And I'm sort of wrestling with them. and go, oh, really? Um, do you, do you, is that how it's going to end? Is that what you have to do? Okay, I get it. And it's quite upsetting. Um, when things happen in a play, you don't, you don't necessarily want to happen, but no, they have to happen. There, there becomes a point at which the play becomes inevitable because the myth of it is inside you and it's deep and it must come out. And it can be from, from the unconscious sometimes. I mean, the, the, the conscious notion of the play was, well, I'm at a place in my life where my father is alive and I'm in the middle, and I have my children. Um, that won't last forever. And so I have uh, an old man, and a middle-aged man, and a young man in the play. And that was sort of conscious, but I realized there were lots of unconscious things at work there as well. And is that, I don't know, I don't really want to put words into your mouth, uh, rewarding or therapeutic, to see, to encounter your unconscious through the free life of a play? Um, no, it's not therapeutic. The, th the therapeutic thing is, is to reach the end and have a director go, I want to do it. That, that's, that's the great pleasure. Yes, I want to devote a year of my life to working on this piece of material with you and casting it and designing it. And, you know, directors get so little credit in theatre for the amount of work they do that is unseen. And I know how much work directors do. Um, it's a big commitment to direct a play, if you're going to take it on and do it seriously. Um, and so that's, that's the exciting bit. We're going to do it. Um, and the rest, well, it becomes a different beast the second you're in the rehearsal room, because the actors have input, and they are creating the roles. And they have as much say in the play. And they, they, they say my words, but, you know, Peter White is John Yates now. It's not my John Yates, it's his. You know, and I like that phrase, that they create the role, the originating actors, because they do. 
we know how much of themselves they put in mm. um, and how the place slightly changes in the rehearsal room. Um, who knew that we would find this, this fabulous young man, Calvin Denver, to play Jordan, which is a part that on the page you could imagine being played in any number of different ways. But he's like this spirit that enlivens the play in some glorious way. And Daniel Mays, of course, who's a sort of phenomenon, really, who knew that Jimmy Kidd could be so sad and be so funny and be so sympathetic and horrible. You know, it's vaguely on the page, but the actors bring it to life. Mm. Well, that's thrilling, isn't it? And none, none of it would be happening if the primary artist, the playwright, hadn't written something. We're all interpretive and there's a whole team around that, but you're there at the center. I think the myth of uh, Patrick and uh, he's done a dramaturgical job on the Bose stratagem. He's written a fantastic new play and uh, he's directing his own version of A Month in the Country, Three Days in the Country. It's the most phenomenal and optimistic comeback and um, it's such a demanding job being a playwright or being a writer because you risk so much and you expose so much and um, here we are today in June with you across all auditoria in the most resplendent, brilliant way. Yeah. That just gives hope to all of us in, in our lives in different ways. It's really to be celebrated. Thanks for coming. I hope you enjoy the play. <laughs>